Shabbat Shalom. Good Shabbos, everybody. So, saw Rabbi Shmuel Oppenheim. He must have stepped out. Where is he? Hiding in the back? Anyway, greetings to Rabbi Shmuel, wherever he is. I know he's here visiting with us today. Um, to our other friends who are visiting today. Oh, there you are. <laughs> it's nice to have you with us this morning, Rabbi Shmuel. So this week's Torah portion begins in Genesis 18. And it begins, And Adonai appeared unto Abraham by the terebinths of Mamre, as he sat at the opening of the tent in the heat of the day. And he raised his eyes and looked, and there in front of him stood three men. On seeing them, he ran from the opening of his tent to meet them, prostrated himself on the ground. And he said, My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, please don't leave your servant. Please let me send for some water so that you can wash your feet and then rest under the tree. And I will bring some bread. Now that you have come to your servant, refresh yourselves and before going on. Very well, they replied, do what you have said. We have been reading through the various trials and tests of Abraham's faith. Last week, we discussed God's calling of Abraham to leave behind all that was familiar and to go to an unknown land that God would show him on the way, right? We talked about how he left. He didn't even know where he was going. And Abraham did it. At an age when he should have been enjoying retirement, he set out in faith. In this week's parashah, there are at least three more distinct tests of faith, and each one is a trial of a specific character trait of Avraham. We read at the beginning about the three visitors and, this, and the destruction of Sodom and Amalek. We also see the promise of a son. And then finally, the Torah portion adds with the, ends with the drama of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, in, in chapter 22. The three visitors in Sodom and Gomorrah was a test regarding others and the nature of God. The promise of a son was a test of Abraham's trust in God and the fulfillment of his promises. And the Akedah was the ultimate test of faith itself. And it is because of all of these tests of faith, according to both the Torah and the apostolic witness, that Abraham is credited with righteousness. Today I want to focus on the mysterious story that opens in this week's parashah. First, it would help by explaining the problem. The parsha begins by introducing the narrative with the phrase, Vairai lav Adonai be'elonei mamre. And Adonai is the one who appeared to Avraham by the terebinths of Mamre as he sat at the opening of his tent in the heat of the day. And then it goes on to explain how God appeared to Abraham. And it says, Vaisa enav, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men stood before him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed down to the earth. The Torah says that Adonai appeared to Avraham, but the description of the appearance is of three visitors. However, throughout the rest of the chapter, Avraham addresses the three as one 
and specifically converses with Hashem using the sacred four-letter name, that, the fancy term that the theologians call the tetragrammaton, right? The four-letter name of God. So while he's talking to these three individuals, one of them he's, he has an, a whole conversation with, and the whole time he speaks him, to him directly as Adonai. He doesn't say angel, angel of the Lord. He says Adonai when speaking to this one individual. And at the very end of the chapter we read, and Adonai departed as soon as he had finished speaking with Avraham, and Avraham returned to his place. Biblical commentators have long struggled with how to understand this passage. For the narrative simply describes these three as anashim, as people who come and visit Avraham. But interspersed throughout their visit is this conversation between Hashem and Avraham. Is God one of the visitors? Are the three visitors only angels? If all three are angels, is Hashem's shekhinah, his presence, there in the midst at the same time? How are we to understand and make sense of this? What exactly is going on here? So let's dig just a little bit deeper. The most common way to interpret this passage within Jewish circles is to understand all three as what? Angels, right? As simply angels. This understanding dates back even to the first century where the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, for example, describes them as angels. The Talmud explains that the three angels are Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael. Michael, it says, came to tell Sarah of Isaac's birth. Raphael, the angel of healing, came to heal Abraham following his circumcision, which was in the previous chapter. And Gabriel came to destroy Sodom. Noting that Genesis 19.1 reports that two angels went to Sodom, the Gemara explains that Michael accompanied Gabriel to rescue Lot. The Gemara then goes on to cite the use of the singular he in Genesis 19.25, where it says he overthrew those cities instead of they overthrew them to demonstrate that a single angel, Gabriel, is the one who destroyed the cities. Regarding the problem of Abraham addressing Adonai in the, in the conversation, Rashi, one of the great commentators, for example, states that it was God's shekhinah, his presence, whom Abraham was addressing, which was there in the midst of the visitation with the three visitors. However, this reading is slightly problematic because it does not answer some of the difficulties with how to interpret the passage in light of the fact that God is described in such an imminent way, in such a physical description. For example, it, it talks about God, uh, I'm sorry, it talks about directly that Abraham says he's, lifnei, he's standing lifnei Adonai, he's standing before Adonai, right? He's not just speaking randomly to some presence that is there, he's speaking directly to one of these individuals. So because of all of these reasons that we don't have time to go to explore in detail, is this the best way to understand this passage? Meaning, to understand this as three angels, is this the best way to understand this? In my humble opinion, the answer is no. There is actually another way of looking at this passage. There are actually a few other ways of looking at this passage. But this morning, I want to focus on one particular way to read this passage I find convincing. And this reading is much older than that offered by the Talmud. 
The reading is to understand one of the three visitors as Hashem himself in a manifest physical form. It is what theologians call a theophany, and that the other two are angels who are then described in 19.1 as then going off to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? It's interesting because when you read it closely, you have these three visitors who come and talk to Abraham. The other two are just passive. There's no conversation at all between them. All of the conversation is with one of them, and Abraham is talking to him with the direct term Adonai, right? The sacred, uh, the sacred name of God. And then it says, when they finish their conversation, it says Adonai leaves, and the other two then go to Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're the two angels who are then the ones who uh, bring about punishment on Sodom. Now, a theophany is... It's a fancy term that literally means God in a physical form. There are many people who will tell you that prior to Yeshua, God never inhabited a physical form, right? You hear this especially in Jewish circles all the time. God is not a man, right? So he doesn't take on a physical form. But we have many examples. We have several examples in the Tanakh when God takes on a physical form in order to interact with humans, right? The first century Jewish philosopher, Philo of Alexandria, understands that this passage is meant to convey a difficult theological truth about the nature of Adonai himself. This is what Philo writes. What is seen is in reality a threefold appearance of one subject. For the expressions are all naturally addressed to a single individual and not to many. For when those persons, having been entertained in Abraham's house, address their entertainer in an affectionate manner, it is again one of them who promises that he by himself will be present and will bestow on him the seed of a child of his own, speaking in the following words, I will return again and visit you again according to the time of life, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Philo understands this to be, in his words, a threefold image of one subject, one image of the living God, and the other two as if they were shadows irradiated by it. It's the way he explains it. Isn't that cool? Commenting on this passage from Philo, the Jewish scholar Samuel Sandemel explains, in the unfolding chapter, there are two interpretive difficulties. The three men are at times alluded to in the singular, but also in the plural. And in the first verse, one wonders about the relationship of God and the three visitors, namely... Are they one and the same, or are they different? In Philo's allegory, there are two important lessons we have already seen and here repeat. The three visitors are, respectively, Theos, the creative power, Kyrios, the ruling power, and the Logos. Some men of limited minds discern God only from the results of creation. Somewhat better minds discern him from his rulership, but the best minds perceive him in the Logos. For the best minds, the triple vision is in the reality of a single vision, that of a unity which transcends every other form of unity. That's the way this Jewish scholar explains this whole passage from, from Philo. And the fact that Philo uses this term Logos, for those who are familiar with the Gospel of John, should not be an accident because it is, represents this kind of uh, a type of incarnation, the word becoming flesh. This understanding is further elaborated 
on by some of the earliest followers of Yeshua. For example, in the second century, Justin Martyr, in his dialogue with Trypho, writes, The one who appeared to Abraham under the oak in Mamre is God, sent with the two angels in his company to judge Sodom. There are several times throughout the Tanakh, as I explained earlier, where we see Hashem interact with humanity in a, in a manifest physical way. Beginning with the explanation in Genesis of Hashem walking in through the garden, of Jacob's wrestling with Hashem before his, enter, in, before his encounter with his brother Esav, and even the burning bush experience is often described by theologians as a theophany. In all of these examples where a theophany is described, they all begin with what seems one explanation, and then the story immediately changes to where the conversation is with God himself. This reading might seem jarring to some, but it is not only an ancient reading of the text, but helps explain some of the difficulties within this mysterious passage. On that day, on that day, Abraham encountered Adonai, along with the two angels who would then go off to, to Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know what happens next, right? As the chapter begins to close, the men are about to leave, the Anashim are about to leave, and then God says, why should I withhold from Abraham what I'm about to do? So he tells Abraham what he's going to do, and what does Abraham do? And Allison reminded of this this morning. She just stepped out. But he says, God, really, who am I? I'm a nothing, right? <laughs> but who am I? But let me just ask you. For 50 people, you would really destroy this city. If 50 righteous people could be found, you would really destroy it. And God said, for 50 people, I won't destroy it. He said, I'm a nothing, right? <laughs> but please, just you know, cut me some slack. If there were five less, if there were 45 people, would you really destroy this city? And God said, for 45 righteous people, I wouldn't do it, right? And Abraham does the same thing. I'm sorry to be such a bother and a nudge, but tell me, right? For 40 people, God said, I wouldn't do it for 40. For 30, I won't destroy it for 30 people. For 20 people, I won't destroy it. For 10 people, if there are 10 righteous people, would you spare this city? And God said, if I can find 10 righteous people, I will not destroy the city. But then we know what happens. The two visitors test the city, right? It says, I'm going to go there and I'm going to see for myself if this is really true, that the cries that are ascending to me are in fact at the level that I understand them to be. And the two witnesses go in. They're, there's the threat of violence against them and other things, but we'll keep it cool for any kids who are here. <laughs> keep it kosher. So they threaten to attack them, and we know what happens. Finally, the angels save Lot and say, if you have any family that you want to be spared with you, get them out of here because we're going to destroy the city. And it says they waited through the night, and at daybreak they told, they told Lot, you better get moving if you want to survive. And it says that uh, Lot was dallying in my translation. He was taking his time. And it says, so they had pity upon him. They had mercy upon him. And they grabbed him by the hand, as long with his wife and his two daughters, and they dragged them out of the city. And it said that we cannot destroy the city until you're basically you're safe, right? I'm paraphrasing, obviously. So it was when Lot is safe 
that they begin to, to destroy the city. And his wife looks back, and she became the first salt shaker. <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. That's a loose translation. <laughs> and Adonai departed as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And then in the next verse, in 19.1, it says, God leaves, and then this is the exact next verse. And the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot sat at the gate of Sodom. And Lot saw them, and he rose up to meet them, and he fell down on his face to the earth. We all experience different types of tests. Today, the Jewish community is experiencing yet another one. And scripture implies that these various tests are for different reasons. Sometimes it is a personal test. Sometimes it is a test of self-sacrifice on behalf of others. Or maybe a test of trust and ultimate dependence on God. Yet we are all tested. And like Abraham, sometimes we pass and sometimes we fail. But even when we fail, each time we must get back up, brush ourselves off, and keep going. Because it is these trials which produce perseverance, which we're told by James. If your faith, you have a faith that has never been tested, how strong is that faith? It's not very strong. But yet somebody whose faith has been tested over and over and over again, and even though they question and even though they wrestle with it, they're still strong in their faith. That's the one that God says, well done, good and faithful servant. The book of Hebrews tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And the person we are directed to regarding this faith is Abraham himself. Why? Because despite it all, he kept he kept his faith in God. He ultimately continued to believe, even though he failed some tests. I believe we as a community are also being tested. As individuals, as a community, as a people. And God is asking, will we trust him? And if we are willing to set out on a journey that we're not exactly sure of. But if we believe, he'll guide us there, just like he did for Abraham. But it will require us leaving aspects of comfort and familiarity behind for a promised land which lies ahead. Testing is going to be a part of our lives. But as we talked about last week, let's let Abraham... Avinu, Abraham, our father, inspire us. That there are going to be times we're going to fall flat on our face. And there are going to be times we're going to succeed in the test that he's brought before us. But each time is an opportunity to learn and to grow. To strengthen who we are. To realize that there is something bigger at hand that we don't always understand. Today, that's what I'm wrestling with. And all morning I was wrestling with this and hearing and reading the news of, of the synagogue shooting today in Pittsburgh. And over and over again, I realized that 
there's a choice that each one of us makes. For us as Jews, just coming to a synagogue is an act of defiance, right? Of saying, no matter what you try to do against us, we're still going to show up. We're still going to be here. For those of you who are not Jewish but who are part of our community, it's a choice that you also have to make. Because the reason why we exist, that there are many wonderful things that we do as a community, but that's not why we exist. We don't exist to dance. We don't exist to observe the feasts. We exist because there's a covenantal obligation that we have as Jews. And if you support that and believe in that and encourage that, you're totally welcome to be here right along with us. But it will be a, there will be a cost. And don't kid yourself in thinking that it's all fun and games. Because remember that tests don't matter how much money you have, how good looking you have. What? Uh, that you are, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I'm married, right? <laughs> Keep me honest, right? Um, Even when it comes to the security of our synagogues, it doesn't matter whether it's messianic or not. Don't kid yourself in thinking, that, oh, well, we're safe because we believe in Yeshua. Trust me, there are other messianic synagogues who have experienced pretty horrible experiences already. Because hatred just breeds more hatred, and people don't make distinctions. There's very real tests that are happening. And as I mentioned, we can choose which side of that test we're going to be on. And what is the ultimate path that we're going to pursue? To either be repairers of the breach, or are we going to be part of the breach itself? I pray that we would be a community that really learns from our experiences. Both the joys and the sorrows, the good and the bad, the pain and the pleasure, to rise up to be the community that is out preparing the world for the return of Mashiach. Because it will happen. The return of Messiah will happen. And God can either use us, or he can give us the warning that Mordecai gives Esther. Perhaps God will choose somebody else. Because God will make sure it gets done. And he doesn't have to use us. But I sure hope he does. I don't know what that looks like. I don't even know how to get there exactly. But I just trust that if we spend more time here than we do here on our screens, that somehow we'll figure it out. That if we're sensitive to the moving of the ruach, of the spirit, if we're sensitive to listening to one another, to wise counsel, and to match everything up here to see if it all lines up, then God will direct our paths. Because the harvest is ripe, the workers are few. And there's a reason why it says there are few, right? Difficult is the gate. Difficult is the way that leads to salvation. Because redemption is not an easy road. Avinu Malkinu, our Father and our King, I pray that you would really work within us so that the trials of our lives produce blessing that the tilling of the soil would produce a great crop. God, it's easy that when we're going through pain and hardship and toil, 
it's so easy to throw around blame or to shake our fists at heaven towards you and accuse you of never even being there. We've all done it. And thank you, God, that in your mercy, you just shake your head and say, if only they understood. <laughs> if only they really got it. Help us, God. Bless us, our Father, all of us as one, with the light of your countenance. Help us to see the light, not only that emanates directly from heaven, but the light that is in each and every one of us. So that together, united together, we can work together for accomplishing the purposes of the kingdom. Thank you, God, for what you're doing here, what you're doing in us and through us, what you're doing in the world. We pray all of this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. So please rise.